Hey there, Habs fans, Habs maniacs, Habs lunatics out there in Habs land. Welcome to the latest episode, a special episode of What the Fuck is Wrong with the Habs, a podcast series I will hopefully try to examine, illuminate, and potentially identify some of the key reasons why the Montreal Canadiens, the most storied franchise in the history of hockey, I've been a dumpster fire of an organization for the past 26 years. This episode, uh, I began three days ago. And uh, since then, a few things have happened in the world that have kind of changed things and changed perspectives and changed attitudes and obviously changed energies. I wasn't really all that enthusiastic about finishing the episode because it seemed kind of insignificant you know during these kind of moments but i was sitting home tonight and i was thinking eh, i honestly i got nothing better to do and uh maybe some of you out there would like a you know a good five ten minutes or a little bit longer if you could stomach my voice that long uh a different kind of distraction from our uh, social distancing. So in that vein, remember the first part of this uh, this podcast is uh, what I originally recorded three days ago, and the latter part is what I recorded tonight. So sit back, relax, put your feet up, and uh, I'll be back in a few seconds with what the fuck is going on with this coronavirus. Sad news in Habs land this week. One of the legends, 11-time Stanley Cup champion. Imagine that, 11-time Stanley Cup champion. The younger brother of uh, arguably the, the greatest icon, the greatest sports icon in the history of this province, Maurice Richard. His brother, the pocket, passed away. It was a sad ending for... Uh, for Henry Richard, he was suffering through a lot of things, and sometimes as you get older, you you see a lot of things in in life that kind of make you realize that uh, sometimes people passing is not that bad of a thing. You know, it's it's a thing that frees up a lot of time and energy for people to live. You know, their family members to to move on instead of clinging on. Fortunately, in my life, I haven't had too many illnesses. I mean, there's obviously been a couple as you get older. There's no doubt about it. You know, you're going you're gonna to experience that loss. I experienced it with my mom. And um, Alzheimer's I experienced with my, with my aunt, one of my aunts that uh, lived in Montreal and moved to Ontario when her daughter uh, 
married my cousin in Ontario. And the family moved there and they lived, they lived there. And in her late 50s, I'm not sure exactly what age she was, late 50s, early 60s, she started showing the signs of Alzheimer's. And within a few years, uh, it was horrific. You know, she couldn't, uh, she couldn't recognize anybody. She couldn't recognize her kids, her husband of over 40 years, her grandchildren, her house, her kitchen, her clothes. Nothing about her existence made any sense to her. There was no connection to it. It was all like uh, you were showing her a movie that she's never seen before and trying to explain to her, you're, you're part of the movie, it's your, it's your story. It's really sad to see. It's really sad. And with, uh, with Henri, it wasn't just Alzheimer's, he was also suffering from a lot of other, uh, other physical ailments. And his family members were on TSN 690, a couple of them, uh, some players that he played with. Scotty Bowman gave an incredible, incredible interview on, uh, on uh, I think, Melnick's show. We called him in. No, I think it was the, the noon show. I think it was between noon and 1 o'clock. So Knuckles was there. Uh, Melnick was there, Marinara was there, because he's always there. Somebody's got to be there. And um, they called Scotty, and it was a long conversation, and incredible. If you have time, I'm sure it's on their uh, their website, TSN 690. Uh, I'm sure it's there, the Scotty Bowman interview. And uh, so that passing was tough. Uh, tonight, the Canadians honored him. And you'd figure, at least, you know, but what are you going to say to guys who are 20-something years old? You know, uh, play for the honor of Henry Richard. They have no idea who he is. You think uh, Arturi, Arturi Lekkonen has any clue who, uh, you know, Pocket Rocket is? You think Nick Suzuki has any idea who the Pocket Rocket is? You know? Maybe Shea Weber knows him. Maybe. I think Gallagher knows him. Of him. About him. And if you think about it, the closest thing we have to a Brendan Gallagher, uh, to a, to the pocket rocket on this edition of the Montreal Canadiens, is Brendan Gallagher. He's the closest thing. That guy who not only gives everything he has every shift, every period of every game, but he demands it of his teammates. And you'd think, so how could somebody that small kind of, you know, guy weighs like 170 pounds, how is he? you know, scaring or intimidating guys who are 220 and two, if you're tough enough on the, on the ice, if you show that ability and, uh, you got respect and respect is not only about, uh, well, I think this guy might beat me up. It's about, oh shit. Yeah. This guy has the respect of my teammates. If I lose his respect, I lose my, the respect of my teammates, you know, and a hockey team is, uh, it's like a platoon. By the time those guys uh, go through their uh, 16 wins in the playoffs, it's a freaking war they've gone through. Probably a, ba a few battles along the way. One giant war. And uh, the way the Canadians are constructed, it's, uh, you know, I don't think they were, they'd last a, a marathon, let alone a war or a battle in a war. They can't last the regular season without getting hurt. There's so many small guys on this team that have to work so hard to create their chances.
they put themselves in positions, you know. What are they probably gonna get hurt? You have guys like Byron fighting for God's sakes. Like, well, what are you doing, Paul? Paulie B, what are you doing? No, there's no code. No, we're not small. No, no, no code. Unless you're you're fighting somebody who's small like you. Then yeah, do what do do what you do. But that tough guy, I'm a small guy, and I pick on the tough guy. Yeah, I know. But when you're when you're a hockey team that that, that lacks that talent, uh, that toughness, that that lacks that team toughness, and Mike Bradley keeps talking about the team toughness, and he keeps getting rid of everybody who's tough. He brought Shea Weber, and he, the guy's been in two fights in three years. Uh, that's your leader, Matt Mountain. That's the guy who's gonna take you out of this uh, this uh, this cavern that you're in. That's the guy. I think the, the, the other fight that he was in was uh, with that pest in Toronto. Who, my God, do they miss him, eh? Kadri? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that was the last time uh, Shea Weber threw a punch in anger in a Montreal Canadiens jersey. So there's a whole bunch of that happening. And you Richard, Pocket Rocket. I have a little personal connection with the, the Pocket Rocket. Nothing serious. We weren't friends or anything. But when I was a kid, when I was, I think, 11 or 12 years old, around there, I'd say, early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, around there, uh, I lived in Uchamont. My family lived in Uchamont. Strange upbringing. Kind of strange and wonderful at the same time. It taught me a lot about things. My father at that time, he was, he had a couple of jobs, I remember. He he was a janitor at a Jewish synagogue, at this huge complex in Uchumont, this Jewish synagogue complex. It was uh, it was two different buildings opposite each other on uh, Ducharme and uh, McEachern. The one one building was a giant uh, kind of a high school, not massive size, but kind of average size high school. And across the street from that was this giant sized uh, took the whole took the whole block. This uh, giant synagogue slash entertainment center. There was a banquet hall. There was obviously a church. There was a gymnasium. And within this, this giant complex, my, my parents were the, the janitors, and we had an apartment within this Jewish complex. It was the weirdest upbringing. I remember I used to like open the door to go to school, for to go to high school. And you open the door, and it would literally lead into the hallway of the, the first floor. And opposite the, our apartment was the door of the auditorium, the gym. So kids would be playing you know, basketball and stuff. You know, it was kind of weird kind of wonderful too because I had access to the gym so on the weekends I used to invite my friends over and we used to have the whole gym to ourselves imagine that whole high school gym to yourself all the equipment you could use you know ball hockey basketball whatever you could think of so we we, I grew up there and um, right across the street from that synagogue on McEachern Street is uh, the Uchiman Arena the hockey arena there's two outdoor um, facilities. There's a smaller one for the kids and for the girls to play at. Back then, it was, you know, kind of, you know, girls were here and guys were there, that kind of thing. 
There was an outdoor rink that wasn't huge size, but it was a decent size. That's where I played most of my hockey. I would be there all night, minus 20 degrees. I'd be there till 3, 4 in the morning. I didn't care. Eventually, the lights would go out. Well, sometimes they would go out, sometimes they stay on. I'd still play, I'd still skate around. My mom used to have to call, call my sister to come and get me. You know, Where the hell is he? He's freaking playing outside in the darkness. Yeah, I was one of those crazy hockey kids. And right next to the outdoor rinks, there was the Uchuman Arena, where I played my, uh, my youth hockey. And I, I literally lived there when I was a kid. And Saturday and Sunday especially, it, the first game would be like 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning. The last game would be like at 9 till 10. I'd be there all the whole day, you know. Spend the whole day there. Just watching game after game as a kid and then eventually I started playing and you know we we became part of those uh you know those teams playing at Uchumont and fans cheering us on and a couple of kids from uh, from uh, that arena made it to the NHL nothing nothing major I think one was a backup goalie in Buffalo but I don't remember his name to be honest I should remember his name but I don't remember it I think one was a winger I don't remember what team he ended up on, but no major NHL careers. But there was a lot of kids that played hockey there. Uchamon was a pretty uh, affluent uh, neighborhood in Montreal. A lot of rich uh, French uh, people. A lot of money in that arena. And uh, every so often, it was, they would have uh, some exhibition game or a tournament or something like that. You know, something uh, out of the normal. And I remember one Saturday, it was like around 12.30, 1 o'clock. You know, I walk in the front and it was busy. Like There was more cars in the parking lot. It was more, you know, there was a buzz around. It's like, it kind of said it was out. I didn't realize what was going on. Is there some sort of uh, superstar or celebrity here or something? What the hell was going on? But I was like 12 years old. I didn't know anything. I just knew I wanted to, you know, hang out at the arena. So I walked in and there was a glass, uh, front glass kind of, uh, I don't know what word I'm looking for now, kind of a barrier where you could see the, the rink, you know? And I saw a couple of friends at the stand, so I went in and sat with them. And uh, one of my friends, his dad was there, sitting with him. And uh, he leaned over and he said, uh, you know who's playing today? I go, Ooh, who's playing? He goes, uh, Ari Richard. I go, who? Because that name, I knew the name, Richard, but I didn't know Ari Richard that well, you know? It was Ari Richard, the pocket rocket. I was a pocket rocket. Then I kind of, oh, the pocket rocket, Maurice Richard's brother. Yeah, pocket rocket, Maurice Richard's brother. And he started telling me about, you know, he, because obviously at that time he was probably in his 40s, uh, my friend's dad. So he had seen Henri play. So he was telling me a whole bunch of games that he played, and how he was the most incredible, fierce competitor on the ice, even though he was one of the smallest guys on the ice. Always found his way to the net when he had the puck on his stick. And... Before I know it, they start the game, and Henri Richard's on the ice. Morning is number 16. Just flying. Flying all over the ice. And this is like early 80s, 81, 82, so he's probably late 40s, maybe 50. I don't know how old he is, right? I don't know how old he was this year, to be honest. But late 40s for sure. Just flying on the ice, puck on his stick like a, like a yo-yo. Uh, does whatever he wants with it. You know, obviously the talent wasn't that great in that uh, exhibition game, but the guys could play, you know. They were all kind of junior A, junior AA kind of quality players. Some guys older. 
I think some older uh, Canadians players were there, but I didn't recognize them, their names on their jerseys. But Henri Richard, it was just incredible to watch. Just incredible. Never got a chance to meet him, but I always have that story to tell, you know. Just sitting there at the local arena in Uchamont for about two and a half hours, just watching Henri Richard play. It was pretty cool. So we had that sad story in uh, Habsland this week. Another legend gone. The Canadians honored him. Today's game. They do that kind of thing well. Because the truth is they focus so much time on the past that they spend a lot of energy at it. So they get they get good at it. You know, They know where to get the clips. They know where to get the interviews. The audio, the video, the visuals. And they do it well. They do it with class and honor and dignity. Which is good. But let's be honest folks. Those days are coming to an end. Uh, who, who are the Canadians going to honor in 20 years from now? Who? Carrie Price? Who are they going to honor? Yeah, I'm kind of stuck too, like you are. Yeah, those days are coming to an end. Once that generation goes, you know, the, the last Stanley Cup championship team we have is uh, early 90s, you know. And... On that team, I don't know, who were the legends besides Patrick Waugh, and he's already been honored. So we got that, that's about it. The, the, after that, there's going to be, you know, we're going to be honoring nothing. That's, that's one of the sad things about this organization. They've gotten into this habit of not letting their, their players that give so much, you know, the, the good ones, finish their careers here or as long as they possibly can. You know, too many guys like Pacioretty, too many stories like that. Guy plays, you know, his whole career, gets drafted by the team, plays his whole career, just about as soon as he's about to make money, oh, time to go. Because we're not very good, so we could uh, we could use uh, the trade. Oof, all these years, you're not that good. No, we're not that good, so we got to trade you. You know, two for one. Okay, two for one, I get it. It's a sale. Rebucks. <laughs> Rebox. So that was a sad part of the, the sad news in Habsland this week, the passing of uh, the Pocket Rocket. Sadder news in Habsland this week was uh, the introduction of uh, PR Dave to the scene, to the the carnival, the Habs carnival. Is it a hockey team? Ah, who knows what the hell it is. I mean, uh, when the games are on. Those, yeah, the hockey team that when the games are on. When the games are not on, it's a whole bunch of other things. It's uh, a, <clears throat> it's uh, PR uh, slogans and uh, marketing campaigns and uh, attacking media guys to uh, try to uh, control the damage, the damage control of the Montreal Canadiens. So PR Dave. I think it's uh, PR Dave Wilson. That's his name. I'm not going to give away the handle. If you want to look for it, look for it. PR Dave Habs. You'll find it. So, occasionally, Mr. PR Dave, I'm sure he's a nice guy. I have no idea who he is, but I'm sure he's a nice guy. Occasionally, uh, PR Dave uh, probably talks to PR Jeff, or maybe they don't uh, talk to PR Jeff about everything. Maybe PR Dave does everything. 
But PR Dave occasionally decides to, uh, you know, point a few things out to a media member that might say something negative about the team. God forbid you say something negative about a team that's about to miss the playoffs for three years in a row. God forbid you say something negative about the team that keeps changing their philosophy every year from a rebet, a reboot to a retool to a reset to a reconstruction to a reorganization to a reassessment. Hey, I don't want to use that word. It starts with an RE. Yeah, that's pretty much who they are, the Mojo Canadians, or that kind of organization. It's like they're they're so bad at, at not admitting that they're bad, that they're even their covering up of their their bad is even bad. It's just it's ridiculous. It's silly. So PR Dave decides that right now, as the Canadians suck upon sucking, now will be a good time to kind of make a, to show a PR Jeff that he's doing his job. He's on the ball. He's making sure the, you know, the the fence is uh, closed in. Not too many, not too much negativity escapes, you know. So, PR Dave decided to uh, to go back in time uh, to the day that the Montreal Canadiens traded uh, Mikhail Sugarchev for Jean Verjoin, and see what uh, certain members of media were, were saying at that time when the trade was made. Now, he did this with one purpose in mind and with one specific person in mind. And that was Brendan Kelly of the Montreal Gazette. Because Brendan Kelly is the one f- person, one media guy in the city, who consistently lets people know that this organization is a, is a bunch of uh, BS. It's a bunch of nonsense. Disguises plans and uh, reboots and philosophies and a whole bunch of other nonsense. And... Um, Last week, for those uh, out of the Habs loop, um, Mark Bergevin had to go on a little PR uh, tour of his own to do a little damage control of his own because the media pressure that he gave up after the, the trade deadline was one of the worst things in the history of worst things in terms of general managers, uh, podiums, microphones, media, and uh, you know the streaming ability. Of the internet, yeah, it was it was a horror show. So he had to do a little bit of uh, massaging of the media, of the message, and uh, his first stop with uh, was uh, Matthias Bonnet of the press. And that article was very revealing. A lot of things were revealed, and I think uh, Mark Burge is in the position now where he's kind of oh my god, I have nothing to defend right now, so I got to be honest about certain things. At least it'll, it'll give me a little bit of protection if people know why I made certain decisions. And the only thing he's the, the only thing he means by protection is uh, you know the Quebecois protection. It's a different kind of mafia. It exists only in the city with his team, but it plays a kind of a intimidation uh, purpose. So within that Brunei article interview with uh, Mark Bergevin, he admitted that the, the team traded Mikhail Sergachev because after they lost Radulov and that uh, complete uh, clusterfuck of an offseason, after they lost Markov. Fans were still kind of a little pissed off that PK was gone because there was nobody exciting on the team. So he decided, well, we got to make a splash and get that Quebecois superstar. Yeah. Quebecois superstar. Now think about it, people. If I stopped you on the street right now 
or if I called you on the phone right now and I told you and I asked you, who are the French superstars in the National Hockey League? Who would you say? Who would come to your mind right away? If you asked me, I'd probably say uh, Huberto, Florida, for sure. 80, 90 points a year. Yeah, that's a freaking superstar in 2020 hockey. Um, maybe Latang in uh, Pittsburgh, terrific defenseman. Um, maybe Dubois with Columbus, terrific young center. And then you're kind of you're kind of searching. Oh, I'm searching. Uh, who who else is there? There is a secondary guy, some really terrific hockey players like David uh, Perron, terrific hockey player. I wish he was with Montreal. Not now. Now he would be uh, absolutely pointless. It would just make him a little bit better, but nothing significant. But a few years ago, yeah, he would be the perfect addition on a team. Like when they picked up uh, Andrew Shaw, if they could have added uh, David Perron instead of Andrew Shaw those years, might have, might have made a difference a little bit. But it's a different uh, argument for a different day. There's, there's maybe a uh, Vegas goalie. Uh, I forgot his name. For some reason, the flower. And, you know, whatever. Yeah, I can't break a guy called the flower here in Montreal. It's ridiculous. So when you think about it, there's not many French superstars because there's not many French hockey players in the NHL anymore. There's so many uh, different talent pools available for players to come from that the Quebecois market is kind of, uh, you know, it is what it is, you know. It's like the Saskatchewan market or, you know, the Manitoba market put together, you know. There's a lot of players here, but they're not all NHL caliber or hockey players. So when you start making those decisions to do those little PR things, those little tricks, or like uh, French, you better be careful because you're, 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 you're dipping your, your foot in a very shallow pool there. There's not much talent there. So you better get that freaking big fish, you know. If you're not bringing Jean-Luc Dubois back, if, uh, if you're not bringing uh, Jonathan Huberdeau back, what are you doing? You know what I mean? You're, you're, you're making that splash to get that French guy who, who's not a superstar. The last time Jonathan Duane was a superstar was when he was 17 years old, playing Rimouski. He's never come close to superstar anything since then. Absolutely nothing. So... Within that interview with uh, Matthias Bonet, Mark Bergevin, you know, admitted that, you know, we made the decision because, you know, we wanted to get a French guy here for the market, you know. And I think he was saying it more as a, as a cover, like I said. You know, okay, so the Quebecois people know that I made that decision for that, so at least they'll back me up for that. And he's absolutely right. They probably will. Most people will. You know, most uh, people who are those kind of Habs fans. And there's a lot of them. Sometimes you turn on the radio and... Uh, all you're hearing is callers uh, in French saying, you know, why are there more French people on the team? Yeah. yeah. We'll go back to my previous argument, like the small pool of talent in France. They don't even realize that. There's so many few, you know, Quebecois hockey players. There's a bunch of guys who are from Quebec, but they don't have a French name, so it doesn't really sound that sexy, if you know what I mean. So, yeah. So, Brendan Kelly wrote an article based on that. You know, the Canadians are making decisions based on uh, linguistic uh, responsibilities to some sort of cultural cause. That is pretty much what the Montreal Canadians have become. They've become, uh, uh, I don't know what it is, a work program, uh, a 
government agency development for a certain members segment of the Quebecois culture, you know, the French hockey world in Quebec. Yeah, the Canadians are part of their thing, you know, or their farm system. It is what it is, people. That's not uh, that's not cherry coat and uh, sugar coat and uh, cherry pick and all that stuff. It's a big part of this team. It's a big part of the reason why this team is not very good, you know, because they're making decisions. They're spending energy on things that they shouldn't be spending energy on. If you want French hockey players, you draft them. You know, I don't want to go back and fall into a Trevor Timmons thing because Montreal Canadiens drafting ones are absolutely horrible over the years. Horrible. One of the reasons is they completely neglected the French market. You know, occasionally we're like, oh, there's one French player that maybe top 15, top 20. There's like that extra pressure on the team because they're picking kind of 17, 18, 19, 20. Yeah, pick that kid. He's French. What the hell? You never know. You know, and they kind of do that, but they're not really drafting the market. So they're missing that second rounder. They're missing that third rounder. They're missing that kid that is not that great at 17, but uh, he was really, uh, he really improved from uh, 16 and a half to 17 and a half. So by 19, 20, he might be really good. Yeah, Patrice Benjamin. Listen, there's, there's reasons the Canadians are who they are, you know, Claude Giroux. There's a whole bunch of reasons. So when you start kind of uh, trying to rewrite history, which is Mark Bergen, what he's trying to do is going to rewrite, okay, we screwed up through the years, so we'll get some French guys now. You know, It doesn't work out. You know, you, you put handcuffs on your team in terms of uh, where you can go, what kind of team you can build. You know, That Sergeyev trade is horrific. So back to... Uh, Mr. Uh, PR Dave. So he decided to look at the Brendan, Call, uh, Brendan Kelly's article the day that the Montreal Canadiens trade Sergeyev were uh, joined. And within that article, Brendan Kelly, uh, in an optimistic kind of best case scenario kind of ways and tones, he said, well, the Montreal Canadiens, listen, if uh, Jonathan Joan works out and he's that French superstar that they needed, they might work out well for the Canadiens this, this, this trade. It had that kind of hopeful, kind of, you know, best case scenario kind of tone to it. So uh, PR Dave uh, took a little snapshot of that uh, that paragraph and uh, he copied it and uh, went to Twitter and uh, logged in and uh, made sure uh, he pasted it correctly and uh, added some comment like, uh, Looks like Brendan Kelly's uh, opinion changed over the years. You know, one of those childish things. You know, one of those high school things. Remember, like when you were when you were like uh, seventeen, eighteen years old, and you was, you had a girlfriend for like a couple of months, and uh, you know, in summertime, and then you see her like a couple of years later, and she's still pissed off that you broke up with her. So she's like, she sees you, you know, at the Dairy Queen or something, and you're eating that, you know, your favorite ice cream. You know, oh, you still like that ice cream, eh? One of those things, you know. Oh, I guess your opinion changed over time, eh? Yeah, it's uh, childish. It's uh, repetitious, to be honest. It's the same freaking nonsense over and over. It's Saturday, March 14th now. When I initially started that podcast, that this episode of the, of the podcast, 
it was March 11th. It was uh, three days ago. And um, I had a little bit of a hiccup with my internet connection, so a big chunk of the audio was uh, was missing, uh, the end part of it. And um, so it took me a while to kind of uh, get back into the energy of it. And uh, as I was, as the as the days changed, obviously the world changed, and so my energy towards the podcast kind of diminished a little bit. But tonight I was kind of sitting here. I was thinking, ah, maybe I should just wrap this one up and add a little addendum to it. And because, um, like everyone pretty much knows, uh, March fourteenth. And the world is pretty much at a standstill right now. Uh, this coronavirus thing has uh, kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, spread in a way most people weren't expecting. I kind of had a hint it would get really serious. And one of the reasons that I had a hint it would get serious is because uh, I kind of understand that the American system, their healthcare uh, infrastructure system, how everything is set up is is ripe for disaster it's the perfect storm and uh, right now with uh i don't want to get political but it's hard not to get political uh when something like this happens and um and the reaction to it is so uh so immature so juvenile so incompetent that even that part kind of gave me a, a warning earlier on that th these things might get seriously bad no, no one expected the Italy thing, and the last numbers I was checking didn't look very good. If you're like over 80 years old and you uh, contract the disease, the, the virus, yeah, your chances are pretty slim that you're going to make it. And uh, that's kind of a scary thought. And, and if you extrapolate that a little bit to the American situation, there's a lot of old people in America. A lot of old people. I did some research today, and um, uh, I think... Over 70 or over 65 is uh, about 52 million people. And um, old folks home in America are kind of not really taken care of very well. Everything is privatized in America. So the more money you have, the better, uh, the better care you have. And that's the horrible kind of system. But it is what it is. And um, today, earlier today, Donald Trump gave... Um, one of the most horrific, one of the most grotesque looking and sounding and in terms of uh, content that you could possibly ever, ever, ever see in, in a crisis situation. It was all just um, some sort of uh, uh, corporate uh, patting of the back and, you know, parading one leader of some corporation to, to give a couple of words about it was like, it was like what the hell are, are we watching what are what are Americans doing how could they possibly let this kind of situation get there you know and then if you dig a little deep to America it's not that complicated but I don't want to get into that I'll save that for a different podcast one day the history of America the reality of America the southern strategy how no matter who the Americans uh seem to have as a, rep a Republican representative, no matter how bad they fuck things up, they always seem to get 60 million, 65 million uh, people voting for them, no matter who it is. 
And if you dig a little deeper, it's not that complicated, people. Yeah, it's a big R word, you know. So, anyways, that's a uh, you know the evolution of racism. We'll talk about that one day. Maybe uh, somebody in uh, in college should give a lecture about it. You know how things change, but they don't really change. They just change because they have to change. But they're still the same. They've just changed. Anyways, back to uh, the coronavirus scare and March 14th. Every sports organization has been either suspended. They've suspended play. they suspended uh, pretty much every activity. Uh, either they've canceled it outright. The NCAA canceled, canceled March Madness. And that's kind of a tradition, especially in America. Uh, Major League Baseball, I think they suspended uh, spring training. I'm not, I'm not sure if they canceled or just suspended it for now. There's still a lot of pausing. Yeah, the NHL came up with uh, the clever idea to uh, to call it a pause. They're one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. A pause? How, how do you pause a professional sports uh, you know, organization? If you're pausing something, that means you have the ability to restart it. That means you have the ability to restart it because you paused it. This is not a pause. Gary Bettman has nothing to do with this. He didn't cause this pause. He doesn't have the ability to take his finger off the pause button and press play. It, it, it's not his control. It's none of our control. That's the scary thing about the situation. It all depends on how smart we are and how, how well we contain it. They call it a pause. I mean, what the hell, people? But then again, you look at the NHL and you look at the hierarchy in the NHL, it's like, oh my God, a bunch of old freaking people. By old, I don't mean just age-wise. I mean old, just, you know, how they think, you know, how they react to things. It's old money, a lot of old money in the NHL. But it is what it is. The, the new thing now uh, with this, this pandemic is uh, philanthropy is becoming, uh, becoming popular. You know, that, that we're really rich people. You know, start, you know, giving things and everybody's clapping. Yeah, that's freaking awesome, man. A multimillionaire give $100,000. Do you believe that? How, how about we get to a system where we don't have to rely on rich people to, uh, to bail people out? The American system is so, is so screwed up now that the people go online and they create uh, GoFundMe pages to, uh, to take care of their sick relatives. If you think about it, it's freaking grotesque. That's what it is, and you know they they seem to keep voting for it every fucking uh, election cycle. They they never seem to vote for anybody that might change anything. They just keep voting for the same the same thing in different clothes. Yeah, yeah. The Republicans were about as evil as evil can get right now because like, they they really don't represent anything besides money. That's all they represent. They they literally hate their own constituents. Those those crazy white racist people. They keep voting for them. Yeah, they keep making them poorer. And those crazy uh, racist. They keep voting for them. It's freaking hilarious. Hey, you, you 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 have a, you have a, an epidemic right now. So you're turning on to CNN or some other net network or you know, news network to get some sort of information, some sort of maybe some calming, you know. And in every face you see, you're reminded that oh, this person is just a DNC hack, and that person is a Republican freaking, you know, talking head point uh, pointer outer, and uh, 
that lady, you know, used to work for Hillary Clinton. And it's like, and that's the girl during the, that was a moderator during the debate that asked a ridiculous question to Sanders with like no journalistic integrity whatsoever attached to it. So everybody you're looking at, all the faces you're looking at, I go, oh my God, I was watching CNN last night and uh, Chris uh, Fredo Cuomo there. It's freaking ridiculous in America. If Chris Cuomo, a CNN uh, primetime their TV host, is his brother is the governor of uh, New York, it's like that little circle of elitists that, that they're doing everything in America. They're you know they're running things. They're telling people what what's important. They're 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 doing pretty much everything. And Americans, dumb Americans, keep voting for these freaking idiots. They don't realize okay, it's time for a change, a real change, you know. And maybe if you don't like Bernie Sanders, the man, he scares you. He's a little too wild. He, I don't know, he's a crazy Vermonter. But at least listen to the policies, you know. And if you don't want that man uh, being the leader for those policies, at least make sure that the person that uh, is the person that's going to be there is the, the person that, re that represents those policies. And the stupid Americans, uh, especially the Democrats, they realize that their party is, is really, you know, very pro-Medicare uh, for all. Very pro. Every single state in this primary has been has been over 55, 60% Medicare for all. Every single state. Some of them a lot higher than that. But it, literally every single state has voted in the exit polls that they're pro-Medicare for all. And who, who's the DNC going to re represent them? Joe Biden. Literally the guy who's responsible for creating the environment that gave us Donald Trump. They're just going back in time. To the same fucking crap and they, they want to do it because uh, as long as the dnc maintains power that's what it's all about for them they don't care about anything else it's just maintaining their power their influence their their ability to sway things that thing that because that thing comes with a lot of money it comes with position it comes with money it comes with influence it comes with guarantees and and stability and, and a whole bunch of other stuff so going back to chris Fre uh, fredo cuomo cuomo he was giving this uh, this kind of man-to-man uh, -man speech, you know, where you look at the camera and you're talking to the audience, but the audience is uh, America as a whole. That's the thing that drives me crazy about these uh, these cable TV hosts, and that's all they are. They're just TV hosts. They're, they're, there's no forget about the journalist thing. Get get rid of that from your your memory or your 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 thought process when it comes to watching these kind of people because they're not journalists. They're TV hosts. They could be just as comfortable having a variety show and just as comfortable doing a political-driven kind of show. It makes no difference. They're just good in front of the camera. So Mr. Chris Fredo Cuomo was giving his, uh, you know, his uh, first-person connection to the American public and how this brave moment, this grave moment, excuse me, how this grave moment in time is going to bring America together and make it strong and unity will prevail and and... You're listening to this guy and you're going, okay, how about at this grave moment in time, uh, you explain to your audience and the CNN audience is the one that kind of is a big chunk of the, the Democratic Party, you know, so they're the ones that are kind of voting for the Joe Biden types, you know, the over 60 year olds, they're the ones voting for these guys. How about you explain to these people how important it is to have a Medicare for all system not just for the poor people, 
for every fucking citizen in America. Because when an epidemic like this happens, it doesn't make a difference if you're rich or poor. It doesn't make a difference if you're black or white. It doesn't make a difference if you're a freaking Mexican that came over the border because you wanted to steal somebody's land. Fucking nonsense. None of that makes a difference because uh, the virus doesn't give a shit. It doesn't care. It doesn't see. It doesn't have eyes. It doesn't know. It doesn't have ears. It doesn't have eyes. It can't hear your accent and it can't tell what skin color you have. Instead of taking that time, this grave moment in time, and it, the grave, the gravity of the moment hasn't even begun in America. They haven't even gone to the point of testing people. So once they get there, then we're going to see exactly what the hell is going on. So instead of taking this moment, this important moment in time, and, and giving the, the, the exact same energy, this the exact same passion that he was giving towards his, you know, unity, that nonsense crap, and explaining to people the benefits of this kind of system, the Medicare for All system. And one of the benefits is it protects everybody during these kind of situations. In Canada, yes, we're a little bit nervous because we, we don't know what's going on and it's still the early part of it. So we're still kind of confused about what might happen. Will something happen? Is it going to be over in two weeks? Or is it, who knows? Belgium closed down for a month. They told, they told everybody come back in May. So over a month. Yeah, everything's done. So just the money situation. And that's the first, the first thought that I had was if you start shutting things down, yeah, a lot of people could go home, work from home. The ones that have those kind of jobs are technology-based in some sort of sense. You know, a lot of people have enough money on the side or, or they've, they've taken enough of their uh, security and they put it in, you know, in smart places. So they don't have to worry for whatever that amount of time happens to be for them. But there's a big chunk of society that just lives week to week. You know, some of them is day to day because a lot of them have cash jobs. And they, whatever they're making that day, whether it's 80 bucks or 100 bucks or 200 bucks or whatever the hell it is, that's what they're making. That's what they're buying groceries with. That's what they're, they're putting away in the bank to pay the rent. At the end of the day. That's what they're putting in the bank to pay their bills. You know, all this money is a daily thing. So once you stop that, you can stop it for a week. But once you get to the point where it's weeks, that's when the point where the government has to kind of kick in. And um, Ontario, a while back, they started their uh, their UBI program, uh, Universal Basic Income. And I think it had reached somewhere like 1100 or something like that. And it was working incredibly well from what I read. It was working incredibly well. It had given people who were kind of stuck... A lot of times people get stuck. They just, they don't have enough money to, to get the education that they need to progress. So they're kind of stuck in a, in a dead end job that doesn't pay very well. So they're kind of stuck paying their bills. And this, this extra, like Andrew Young, uh, Andrew, uh, Andrew Yang, Andrew Yang was saying, uh, the Yang Yang in America, this UBI thing, it, it relieves that stress, not only from the individual, but from society that eventually has to take care of this person. And in moments like this, these kind of international moments, these crises that happen not only in your city or municipality, but they are happening all over the world, that thing, you know, it helps society because it makes everybody breathe and relax, you know. If we all knew there was money coming in every month, nobody's going to go to freaking Costco and, uh, and back up their van and fill it with freaking toilet paper. What I'm seeing on Twitter, some of the images that, are, images that are coming through with how ridiculous people are being, 
it's just in, it's just insane to me. It's like, what the hell? I mean, I understand if you get to the point where, you know, weeks on end. I mean, how much fucking toilet paper do you need? What the hell are you going to do with it? There's other ways to wash your fucking ass. You don't need every single uh, ply, every single sheet of toilet paper at Costco to use it, to do it. You kind of realize a lot of people just don't have basic uh, survival instincts or they haven't learned any because we've lived a comfortable life, especially the ones that were born like, you know, after 1970. There's not really much has happened. I mean, September 11th was like the scariest thing that happened in our lives, you know, and now this and this is even scarier because we have no idea where it's going. You know, the latest numbers coming from Italy are scary. So... Yeah, so I was going to do the original podcast and finish it, re-edit it, and, you know, put it out there, and then the whole thing kind of, uh, you know, exploded. The NHL is pretty much shut down. They're kind of hoping, they're praying, they're, you know, well, maybe we'll tell the players soon if they can play and train together, if maybe, you never know what can happen. It's like, dude, what the fuck are you talking about, man? What are you talking about? Instead of automatically starting the the process where they have to get to the point where, you know, they have to figure out what the hell they're going to do if the season's canceled. Okay, let's start that process. You know, how do we figure out the the draft? How do we do all these little things? You know, how do we figure out the salary cap for next year? You know, instead of doing those little things, they're they're kind of just, you know, crossing their fingers and hopefully things work out. Dude, how are you hoping things work out? You have no idea what's happening in America. What are you going to do? You're going to play every game in Winnipeg? That's how you're going to finish the season? Dude, we're going to have a round-robin round top uh, tournament in, uh, in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Yeah, it will start at 5 o'clock in the morning. We're going to finish 5 o'clock at night. What are you talking about? But that's the NHL. You know, they, they, they pause, the, uh, they pause the, se- the season. They get unpaused it soon. They let us know when they're unpausing it. Uh, Quebec uh, doesn't allow more than 250 people to, to get together in the same place. And that's probably going to, if if we have a couple more cases where people, so far, knock on wood, every single case of the coronavirus that we've had that in Quebec, I think every, literally every single one is travel related. It's people that were on uh, international flights. They came here and they show the signs and they have it. And we, we haven't had any, I don't think we've had any deaths, but I don't want to. I don't want to speak out of turn. I'm not sure about that. But we're doing okay. Uh, everything is closed in the city pretty much. You know, grocery stores are kind of still open. Other cities are taking more drastic uh, precautions. In Montreal, we still have the, the public system. The, the transit system is still open. And that's, is, especially the metro, that's like your your classic breeding ground for viruses. You know, it's literally a fucking tunnel. It's a tube. You know, everything is kind of contained within. And for people who have used the metro a lot, they know that, uh, yeah, the, uh, the the ventilation is not the greatest in that place. In any place, there's there's, there's some uh, metro systems or metro uh, stations where you go, oh, my God, can I breathe now? Oh, yeah, I can breathe now. Yeah, once you get outside. So the podcast started with uh, with the passing of um, of the pocket rocket. Uh, I was talking about uh, PR Dave and that nonsense, but that seems so insignificant now. That's one of the reasons why I was kind of 
hesitating about releasing this uh, this podcast because it was like, eh, who the fuck wants to hear this shit? You know, at this time, you know, a lot of people are not even working; they're stuck at home. They have no idea whether uh, the next paycheck's gonna come. So that UBI thing, I think it's gonna it's gonna eventually gonna have to kick in. If this thing goes more than two three weeks, yeah, how, how the hell are people gonna live? You know, it, it's one thing when we had the when we had that ice storm and a lot of parts of the city were shut down. A lot of the parts of the city were not shut down. You know, so a lot of things were still working. People were still making money, you know. But now we're, uh, nobody knows what the hell is going on. You're kind of you're kind of hesitant, you know, to go to a just to go out and do your regular do your regular thing, your regular routine, grocery store, you know, whatever. Jacques whatever you do, you know. If anybody coughs, you kind of you know, give them a second glance. And then realize, oh, maybe it wasn't a good idea to give them a second glance. I'm closer to the to the airbornes. It's, it's a virus, people. Just protect yourself. Wash your hands. I mean, the fact that we have to uh, explain people in 2020 uh, to wash their hands, it's like, seriously? But where this virus originated in China, the hygiene is horrible. I mean, absolutely horrible. I, ha I had no idea. Absolutely no idea until I started following uh, this uh, South African guy who moved to China, lived there, and that was making a lot of YouTube videos from here, but he was really technical about it. So his videos were pretty cool. Uh, great cameras and great locations. He understood what's, what was interesting. And he had that first person kind of YouTube uh, videos where he holds the camera as he walks, he walks through the city and different places in the city. And he was pretty honest. It was pretty interesting. And with the coronavirus thing kicked in, his channel became even more interesting. Uh, he had to move out because uh, he was a little bit... Uh, he was giving out a little too much information. So him and his wife he married a Chinese girl from China. Uh, they moved back. I don't know where they moved. I think they're in, in America now, but I'm not really sure. So even from here, he's still making videos. He's making live streams, explaining certain situations and the, the reality of the, the information that's coming out of China. And one of the things that really struck me was yeah, he explained just the lack of basic, just in their culture, not every single Chinese person. I mean, the modern ones are the modern ones. But China is huge. I mean, massive. You know, the population is, what, uh, three times the size of America? Four. Massive. And there's a lot of rural areas, a lot of country in China. They're slowly moving everybody towards the city, but that's going to take forever. And there's a lot of weird traditions in China. Uh, and a lot of them are just based out of poverty and need. And... But the hygiene thing one is just, I don't know, it's just one that, and he talks about it. He goes, just in China, if you're just walking on the street, you'll see people spitting everywhere. In America, and in, in North America, people spit on sidewalks, especially smokers, because like, they, just, they just have that phlegm that builds up in their, in their throat, and they have, they have to get it out. As a smoker, trust me, I could. I could. But the vast majority of people in North America, in Montreal, if they're going to spit on the, on the street as they're walking, they'll spit off the sidewalk. They'll spit, you know, onto the street. But in China, he goes, nah, that has nothing to do with that. So they sneeze right in, in their hands and, you know, they just wipe off their hands. And 
if you go to uh, gas stations and uh, you'll see that the, the public restrooms have no paper, no soap, just holes for people to uh, to do their business. It's it's that kind of unsanitary situations mixed with a whole bunch of other kind of weird technical uh, cultural things that they do in terms of the things that they eat and other stuff. Once you get that blend happening, when you, once you get that ability for something like that to, to, to spread so quickly because of just the lack of sanitary conditions, just a basic lack of hygiene, you create these situations. And you know, he was talking about that, you know. And right now in China, they're, 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 they've kind of reversed the message where at first it was contain the damage within China, let everybody know everything is perfect, even though a lot of things are not perfect. And now it's reversed to the point, because now in America everything's been it's so screwed up and up in the air. And uh, now the Chinese are blaming foreigners and Americans for any other possible coronavirus uh, victims or numbers that might pop up in China. So they've, they've kind of eliminated all responsibility from their hands. Donald Trump... Donald Trump, I'm surprised he's responsible for taking a dump. You know, the guy is just, he's a walking child. How they allowed that thing to, he, he's like the, the most the most predictable con man that there is because there's nothing in his brain. It's, it's all really insecurity and, you know, and looking tough and sounding tough and just a lot every time he talks it just it makes me sh kind of shivers like how the fuck did that society how do we allow this thing to happen do we get to this point you know and the whole money image today was just disgusting you know america cares more about the uh, about corporations and they care about people their own people the people that vote for them and they're they're kind of outright with it yeah you're not you're not people you're consumers they had a whole thing today. They were showing people the new consumer plan for coronavirus uh, epidemic. What the fuck are you talking about? That's how ridiculous it's in America. The whole thing's business now, you know? Even epidemics, even even outbreaks that must that, that could lead to millions of deaths. It's just a, how much, who, how, who, how, who, how are we going to make some money on this one? Can we make any money on this one? There's got to be some way to make money on this. There you go. The parade of CEOs. During a national epidemic, I'm never going to forget that one. This one, that one's etched in my memory forever. So that was that was uh, kind of the beginning of the podcast, and then I tried to uh, to wrap it up, and then the coronavirus thing happened, and talking about the Habs seemed so insignificant. It was like, what the hell's the point of that? And uh, the season got paused. Everybody's gonna pause. We'll, we'll, we'll unpause everything soon. It's it's just absolutely ridiculous, you know. Sad. The whole thing is sad. There's nothing to watch now. As a sports fan, as a sports junkie, not only do we quickly realize how uh, how stupid our lives are, we're full of distractions. You know, There's basketball, and football, and baseball, and, and hockey. And, Talking about hockey and tweeting about hockey, and one distraction after the other. But it's you know it's our lives, man. We love it. I don't want to give this shit up, so, but we might have to give it up for a while. That's not a big thing. That's not a bad thing. We'll do other things as long as we have electricity, you know, and food to eat, and we still have our decency and compassion towards others. Nothing changes. 
mankind has gone through much darker fucking things than this. Much darker. People found light in the most horrific situations you could possibly imagine. They found light. You know, that's what they shared. They shared light, the spirit, the human spirit that is light. You know? So, PR Dave, Pocket Rocket, the coronavirus, the corona pause. Pausing the corona. Sad. So sad. But I hope you guys uh, enjoyed whatever the hell this was. And uh, I'm not sure I'm going to do another one. There's really a point in doing another one for this year. I mean, it is what it is. I mean, in a good way, uh, PR, uh, PR Jeff and uh, Briggy Ben, a lot of pressure has been relieved from them because nobody's really talking about the Montreal Canadiens anymore because nobody really cares about the Montreal Canadiens in, in this kind of situation, especially under a, you know, epidemic. Who gives a fuck about PR Jeff? They are what they are, you know. They'll come back next year with the same crap and feed us a different uh, slogan on a T-shirt. So, having said all that, take care of uh, of yourselves. Take care of each other. Uh, for God's sakes, don't buy every freaking uh, toilet paper that you see. Now, for some reason, we all have toilet paper in our heads. Like, uh, wherever you go, if you see a toilet paper, you're going to buy it. It's just, it's stuck in our brains now. We had toilet paper fever. So, take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Be be smart, you know. Wash your hands. Be, uh, you know, wash the stuff in your house, too. The stuff that you touch regularly, you know. Your stove and your sink and your, uh, especially your 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 garbage disposables, those kind of things. Your garbage cans and stuff like that. Clean them out, give them a rinse. Because a lot of things were spread are spread that way too. And uh, yeah, if you take a dump, uh, close the lid before you flush. I read that today in Singapore, and they've been very good at this. So that's my final <laughs> message in this podcast: <laughs> is what to do when you take a dump. Remember, people, take a dump. Close the lid, then flush it so everything doesn't go back up in the air. Have a good one. I'm in a sad mood tonight. Oh, I'm in a sad mood. I'm in a sad mood tonight. Done gone away and left me My baby done gone, yeah My baby done gone away and left me My baby done gone I don't know why she left me I don't know where she's gone But all I know is I'll until my baby comes back home, yeah, because I'm in a sad mood tonight. Oh, my baby done gone away and left me. My baby done gone. Oh, I don't know why she left me, but this one thing I She'll come back home I'll never, never do it no more Yeah, because I'm in 
Say